You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That's just my 1991 calling. That's a pretty cool retro ringtone you've got going on there. Man, that brings back so many memories just hearing that. Did you have a Nokia phone? I did. I didn't have a Nokia, but my friend said I had a Siemens. When ah, came out. okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I had that Nokia 3310. The indestructible Nokia. Yeah, that thing was pretty good, man. You take it anywhere, drop it. You didn't have to worry about the screen cracking. You could play Snake on us. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It was, it was awesome. Those things were great. And we're, we're the last generation that grew up without phones. If you think of everybody after us grows up with smartphones and with technology and with communication technology, I should rather say. Yeah, it's funny. Just yesterday, I saw a TikTok of these people going around and, and saying, okay, just asking different generations, what type of hand gesture would you do to represent talking on the phone? And anybody above like something like around age 20-ish, right? They all use that. It's kind of like the hang loose symbol where you put your thumb and your pinky out and put your fist up to the side of your head. And that's like symbol for I'm talking on the phone. And then they went and asked like a tween age kid, yeah. what hand gesture would you use? And they put a flat palm against the side of their head. Yeah, super interesting. <laughs> yeah, times have changed, eh? My wife was very quick to remind me to say Nokia and not Nokia, like the rest of the world calls it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that darn accent. When I moved to the States 17 years ago, a lot of people would make fun of me for saying aluminum and aluminium. So th this is one of them. So let's just say that Nokia and Nokia is interchangeable today, just to keep things simple. <laughs> yes. But before we tell the interesting story of the rise and fall of Nokia, mm -hmm. How is the rise and fall of the Childresses in wave 1.2 of the pandemic? You know, it's actually very good right now because the Dodgers are playing baseball again. Mm. That is a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This whole thing has been crazy because with the lockdowns and just coronavirus in general, everything going on. The tough thing is, is normally when you have to stay at home, it's like, okay, no big deal. I'll watch a few games, right? I'll have something to entertain myself with other than just movies and TV and that kind of thing. And being a big sports fan, mm -hmm. oh man, having no baseball, no basketball, no football, just absolutely no live sports has been pretty painful. So I'm super excited that we have baseball back. Empty stands, but it's real games. Do they have like pictures of people in the stand? I also heard on NPR the other day that they actually play soundtracks. Yes. Just to help the players feel comfortable. That's so weird, right? They hit a home run and the <laughs> speakers go crazy. Yeah. What's especially awesome is when they play like the wrong kind of like crowd noise. <laughs> like you think it's going to be this big hit and then nope, it's a ground out. But yeah. there's this huge like crowd reaction. It's like, oh, nope. Yeah. At Dodger Stadium, at least, you can buy like a cardboard cutout of yourself that they'll put in <laughs> a 
a particular seat for the season. It's like 150 bucks. Oh man, that is and, ridiculous. <laughs> it's crazy. So have you bought one? No. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Yeah, I don't need to see my ugly mug on TV. Yeah. I'll be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so today we're going to be talking about Nokia and that ringtone. Let's play the ringtone one more time. That is so fueled by nostalgia. Yes. This year that I can place myself in that era. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> so many memories. Yeah. So think back when you first got your phone. When was it? How old were you and where were you? Can you remember? Oh, geez. I mean, I think by the time I got my first phone, I think I was 19. Yeah. So that's the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no. <laughs> now people will definitely know my age, but it was somewhere around 1999. Yeah, I think I was a little bit earlier. But again, I had that big Siemens. But for a lot of people, especially older people who remember the very start of the mobile phone era, the first mobile phones were these really big, giant boxes that you'd carry around. <laughs> and they were yes. predominantly produced to be used in your car. So it's like literally this box you put on the floor of the passenger seats, or if you had the right car, you'd put it like in between the two seats. And then there would be a cord attached to this box in the receiver. And if you were driving around speaking on the phone, you were the bomb. You can just imagine, like th this was it. Your chauffeur was ordering Grey Poupon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and for other people, the next generation, the big brick phone that looked very much like a military walkie-talkie. It was smaller than the box, but it's not really something that comfortably would fit in your pockets or a purse for that matter. It was actually like a really big thing. And for most people, I would say around age 30, 35, the first mobile phones were made by a company called Nokia. And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. So throughout the 90s, the Nokia 3310 really owned the market. And it's really impressive if you look at the numbers, which we'll go through in a minute, of what that really meant. But they really seriously dominated and in a way also created the mobile market during the 90s. And for about 14 years, Nokia was the band-aid of mobile phones. You know, they didn't call it a mobile phone. They called it a Nokia. If you had something, even if you had a Siemens for that matter. So they introduced the world to the term smartphone, as we know today. And what is really interesting, how on earth could they have gone from a 14-year major dominance within the market to where they are today? Well, to really understand the question, we need to go back and we need to look at where Nokia started and really talk about where the company comes from. Yeah. So believe it or not, the history of Nokia actually goes all the way back to 1865. That is amazing. I didn't know that. I had no idea. So that was when a Finnish Swede mining engineer named, and I'm going to just brutalize all of these European names, so I apologize in advance, but Finnish Swede mining engineer named Frederick Idestam founded a pulp mill outside the town of Tampere in Finland. And this was back when Finland was actually still a part of the Russian Empire. And he did pretty well. 
Three years later, he opened a second mill near the neighboring town of Nokia, where there was a better potential for hydroelectric power. And in 1871, he and a friend named Leo Mechelin started a company called Nokia AB, or Nokia Company. And that company existed for the better part of a century. And these guys, just an interesting side fact here, they were super interesting people. According to Wikipedia, Michelin was a professor who also founded the Liberal Party of Finland and the Union Bank in Finland in 1862. So they were very innovative people, as well as being the first chairman of the town council in Helsinki. So these guys were movers and shakers back in the 1860s. Yeah, so this company exists for the better part of a century, much as it had at its inception, really primarily being focused on being this hydroelectric power company, until the technological age swept it up into an entirely new story. So in 1967, the Nokia company merged with Finnish Cable Works and Finnish Rubber Works to form a new company with an interesting set of capabilities. So they start doing things like paper products, car and bicycle tires, footwear, communication cables, TVs and consumer electronics, personal computers, and they still are doing that electricity generation. So they just kind of diversify into a really kind of like broad set of capabilities. It's super clear to me now how they got into the mobile telecommunication industry from that subset of products. It makes total sense. <laughs> Bicycle tires. <laughs> they had a few different product lines. Yeah, and then in 1972, a handful of Nokia employees started working on a phone that could go in people's car. And they made about 1,600 of them. A Nokia employee named Maddie Mackinnon, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, who is often credited of being the father of texting, talked about how strange it was to everybody. And there's a quote that we found in the... New Zealand Herald.co.nz. And he said, quote, I remember someone coming up with the term mobile phone. Everybody laughed. Who carries a phone with them? And he said it was really strange to everybody because nobody has actually seen it. So they spent the 1980s developing communication technology for the Finnish military, including mobile phones, which you would think is a pretty normal origination for this type of technology, right? Sure. In the 1980s and 1990s, the company divested itself of everything but its communication business to focus on what they saw as the greatest opportunity. And they rebranded itself as Nokia Mobile Phones. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they launched the first GSM phone, which was the 1101 was the model number. And they launched that in 1992. And there's basically two different types of phone technology. GSM allows you to transmit data in addition to kind of your regular phone signal. So they were actually the first company to come out with phones that had data transfer capability. And that's how they would do texting, right? That's where they use the data for texting during that time. Exactly. So that happens in 1992, and then it's followed by the 2100 model in 1994. The 2100 was the first phone with that famous Nokia ringtone. And these phones pretty much single-handedly launched the mobile phone boom. And as a result, Nokia became the largest mobile phone manufacturer in the world by 1998. Wow. Yeah. So at its peak, Nokia's annual budget 
get this, was larger than the budget of multiple countries, including the government of Finland. <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> yeah, and just before we started recording this, we talked about the net worth of Jeff Bezos, right? What did you say? How much was it? <laughs> I think it's 186 billion is yeah. the last number that I saw. Yeah, staggering, right? That people and companies have so much money and what they choose to do with it. It's interesting that they were worth more than the country that they originated from. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so of course they seem completely untouchable. So in 2007, Apple releases the iPhone and then everything changes. Mm. From 2007 to 2012, Nokia loses a staggering 90% of its market value. So comparing Nokia with their rival Samsung, who of course was also kind of, you know, putting its hat in the ring during this time and trying to keep up from an innovation standpoint. Sure. From 2010 to 2012, the market share balance for Nokia went from 76% to 6%. And... For Samsung, it went from 23% to 42%. So it's this massive shift. That's a really important nugget of information because a lot of people would say that the decline was predominantly based on the innovation from Apple, right? Having the first touchscreen phone, it could do more than just phone. It was truly a smartphone, it had a calendar, it could play music and all these type of things. But they were right on top. So there's no reason why Nokia shouldn't have had the same research of looking into the future, trying to figure out what's going to resonate with the current consumer, like what Apple did and what Samsung did. So the fact that Samsung could go from 23% to 42% during this period and Nokia dropped 70% during the same time, purely shows you that their lack of innovation and the structural issues that Nokia had versus just circumstantial from the market pushing them into that direction. I think it's a really important nugget of information to think about. Right, because Samsung, even though in the beginning lagged behind Apple in terms of you know the iPhone coming out, they were very quick to respond yeah. and responded forcefully with Android. And so, you know, they were very competitive and for a number of years now have actually, from an innovation standpoint, outpaced Apple iPhone devices. Oh, man. Do you really want me to start talking about Apple? <laughs> I, I was wondering at which point in this episode we would go down that rabbit hole. Hi, man. Apple has got such a... I still use Apple as my daily workhorse from a computer standpoint, because I think from a hardware standpoint, it's still the best. But from a mobile phone standpoint, they have really just been slipping. They've just stopped innovating. I mean, they have $245 billion in cash, not market value, cash. <laughs> and what are they doing with it? Nothing, right? So this story that we're talking about Nokia today, fast forward to 2020, is kind of like what's happening with Apple. And, you know, I think we should actually do an episode on Apple of how they have managed to stay on top without innovating at this point. And we can make some projections of where we think they might end up in the far future. But I digress. You're right. Samsung has done a fantastic job in combating the early days of innovation through Apple. And there was no reason why Nokia couldn't have done the exact same thing during this time. So... Digging into exactly how and why that happened is 
actually really interesting and a really good business strategy lesson for anybody. The beginning of the end of Nokia actually happened a few years earlier. In 2001, Nokia took a massive hit, not because of its competition, but because of slowdown in the global market for phones and mobile phones, you know, 2001 crash that we had. But they were so big during this time that they basically recovered pretty easily and demand increased and Nokia seemed to be fine. But just three years later, in 2004, they started reporting declines of their market share. They still owned 35% of the market, but it was nothing like the dominance they had within the 1990s. In 2007, they announced a massive recall of 46 million of their phone's batteries were recalled, dating back all the way from 2005. Ooh. And of course, this is the same year that Apple comes out with the iPhone. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Perfect timing. But also, that's not, I mean, that is a big deal, 45 million phones. It's about $140 million worth of impact that it had on their bottom line. And for a company that's valued in the billions, that's a drop in the ocean, right? And it's at its peak, it was what, $330 billion? Yeah, exactly. And it also makes me think of just recently, like a couple of years back, the Samsung, I think it was a Samsung Note, had a problem with his battery that would overheat and just randomly catch fire. <laughs> yes. Wasn't allowed on planes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And just the way that Samsung recovered from that. So it's possible. These things happen, especially with innovation. And it is how you deal with it that sets you apart. It's not what is happening that sets you apart because this type of thing's going to happen with an innovation all the time. So anyway, these batteries were in a huge range of their products and they had to recall all of them. Of course, we know that's when the iPhone comes out that year. And then the next year in 2008, Android version 1.0 hits the market. So you can see just the reaction time from Samsung is so much faster than anything Nokia could have done at this point in time. So faced with this huge shift in the smartphone market, Apple and Samsung just blazing ahead at breakneck speed, Nokia's leadership really appears to just have failed to address this and just even understand the significance of what was going on. So according to a Guardian article that we found about this, there's a quote that says, Nokia had dismissed touchscreens as a gimmick that used too much battery. Mm. How wrong they were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they missed the shift entirely. They were never able to catch up. Nokia's profits for the third quarter of 2008 dropped 30%, while iPhone sales took off, jumping 330% during the same quarter. Ouch. And in 2009, Nokia was forced to lay off 1,700 employees around the world. And the smartphone market was now hugely competitive. Not only Apple and Samsung, but also you have BlackBerry, HTC, LG, and more. And Nokia is completely behind the curve. And part of why this happened is that during this time period, actually shortly before Apple comes out with the iPhone. In 2006, a new CEO takes over named, and I'm probably going to get the name wrong, Ali Pekka Kalasvo. And the culture of Nokia shifts 
significantly. It was a company that was based on freedom, innovation, trust, loyalty, and commitment. Employees basically kind of took responsibility and accountability, and then they had a lot of autonomy to innovate and come up with initiatives and really do a lot from an R&D perspective. And so this new CEO that comes in, his background was a lawyer and a CFO. Man, and we, you and I have worked at a company before, I suppose we'll just not say the name, a big, massive organization that did just that, right? They were struggling from a finance standpoint, and then they appointed a equity firm that drove the organization through the numbers, and they basically just squashed innovation and, to be frank, culture for that perspective that then drove out all creative people. So it is kind of sad to see a struggling company do just that. That's kind of like the thing that really hurt them in the end. He's a very numbers guy, just really focusing on how do we squeeze the best numbers out as possible. So they go through this shift of ownership from traditional Finnish investors into international investors, specifically American mutual funds. And as we know, with the stock market, everything is very quarterly based. And when you have mutual funds that are basically your key stakeholders, all they're really going to care about is quarterly profits. Exactly. They have this super nearsighted, myopic view of what success looks like Mm -hmm. and no loyalty to the company, no understanding of what the actual real market dynamics and pressures of the company are and what the company actually has to work with, and really very little incentive to ensure the profitability and stability of the company long-term because they can always just swap it out with another stock in their portfolio Mm -hmm. if the performance starts dragging. So they're just trying to squeeze as much as they can out of it. And to your point, exactly what happened that we experienced with this private equity company coming in. The same thing happened here. Vision was lost. Innovation was lost. R&D was lost. All of these things that a company like Nokia, who their entire business is founded on innovation, essentially kind of came crashing down. So they had to do something, right? But at this point, they went from bad to worse with you know running the organization through a numbers and trying to please stockholders versus looking forward and innovating. But would it be too little or too late? So in 2010, Nokia appointed a new CEO, Stephen Elop. Previously, he was the head of the Microsoft Business Software Division, and he became the new CEO. And he was actually the first non-Finnish leader in the history of the company. So profits soared briefly that year, but job losses continued as Nokia worked to find its footing. And Elop gave a speech to the Nokia employees in 2011, coining the term that's actually been widely quoted in business circles thereafter. And he called it, we're standing on a burning platform. That's what he said to everybody. Jeez. That's very confidence instilling when it's coming (laughs) from your leadership. Hey, everybody, this is not only a sinking ship, but the ship's on fire too. He gave that in a speech and then he also sent out a memo to everybody. And you can find this memo online, the whole thing where he talks about Nokia's business was a man standing on a burning platform, which is very descriptive Mm. of where they were, but it's still pretty scary when you hear that from your CEO. (laughs) 
So in a desperate bid to solidify their business, Nokia partners with Microsoft, announcing in 2011 that they'd be using the Windows Phone operating system on Nokia devices. Mm. And the result was the Lumia 710 and 800 smartphones. Sales were disappointing. And in the first quarter of 2012, Nokia announces operating losses of 1.3 billion euros in the quarter. So, of course, that follows by cutting another 10,000 jobs. And by this time, takeover rumors are running rampant, which the CEO, Elip, worked to defuse. But in 2014, Nokia is indeed bought by Microsoft, and the once powerful giant's fall is now complete. So at its height, Nokia was valued at over $300 billion. In 2016, Microsoft sold the final remaining parts of what was the legacy Nokia business in two separate sales for a total of just 350 million pounds. Wow. And phones are no longer produced in Finland currently. Wow. It's kind of sad. It's kind of sad. Yes, it's an epic decline. Yeah, but it's a lesson in how completely, completely they misread the industry trends and let the company's politics get in the way of its success, right? So yeah. reading reports of Nokia's internal culture at the time, it's an all too familiar story, like something that you, know, you and I have lived before, Yes, where the workforce reported tension and infighting among staff and, and leadership and the executive team was ignoring the actual problems and the state of the consumer, technology, and the ways they strategically missed the boat. And instead of focusing on that, they would focus on restructuring or reorging the organization. Right, because that's something that you can see on the PNL. Yeah, it's instant, right? It's like, we're going to lay off 10,000 people and we're going to get new leadership. Yeah. But as we know, and if we've seen on the show, that's not a good breeding ground for innovation and (laughs) R&D. So between 2004 and 2013, Nokia underwent four restructurings. That's a very short period of time. And it's a bit like the US government. Every four years, there's a new party in place and they undo everything from before and they start from scratch, right? (laughs) It's not something you want to see in an innovation company or a technology company. So it's easy to see in hindsight, but it was this perfect storm of mismanagement, not having the right leadership in place at the right time, strategic misfires, and then combining that with this tidal wave of market innovation and competition in the form of what Apple and Android were doing. And for Nokia, its own mistakes combined with the advent of one of the most iconic devices of all time, the iPhone, Mm -hmm. basically just completely buries them, a company that seemed bulletproof and invincible only a couple of years earlier. Well, something you often say, right? The position to innovate from should be a position from strength and not a position of weakness. There was no reason for them not to innovate, right? They were poised to do it. That's $300 billion company and all these factors that we're outlining right now obviously prohibited them from doing that but there was no reason for them not to lead the way here they were 
already poised to be a category leader or to continue to be a category leader. Yeah. And one of the problems that they had was that they were very focused on hardware and they didn't have the right kind of visionary people in place to understand that it's not just about hardware. It's also about software. Mm -hmm. Nokia engineers made great physical devices. They were very like electricity and materials focused, but they weren't super great at making the software that made those devices actually work. Yeah, think about it this way. It's like it was too much phone, not enough smart. You can like <laughs> you basically say, it. you know, we joke around today that thing we use a iPhone the least for is the phone, right? But in Nokia's mind, that was their primary use. And they never really understood the greater potential of apps and software to change the relationship between the device. And that is a massive strength that Apple has. Yeah. And how Samsung has caught up with making Android more accessible for anybody versus when they started way back when it was more of like you needed to be a programmer to be able to understand and operate Android. But they kind of missed the boat completely, especially when they partnered with Microsoft during this time, which didn't have any foothold within the mobile software space. And obviously that failed. So in a similar story, in many ways, it's what we talked about in, I think it was episode 14 with Polaroid, right? Where Polaroid was in love with the past, with its nostalgia, and it believed in the power of its historical brand would be sufficient to carry through a massive shift in consumer-related devices from getting into the whole digital space. And they were wrong, right? This is something that really hurt them. Mm -hmm. So the exact same story is here where Nokia believed so much in the power of its historical brand that it didn't recognize the sea of change already on the way in how consumers fundamentally interact with technology. And in the results, Nokia literally got left behind. Yeah. So one of the results of the speed of technology innovation, think about Moore's law. Moore's law grows exponentially with every 12 months or 24 months. It literally doubles in speed and processor speed and chips for that matter. And knowing that the brand can be left in the dust of the market that they want dominated faster than anywhere before. So once they like fall off the apple cart, they get left behind really, really fast because the other companies that innovate are riding the whole Moore's Law exponential graph, basically. The flip side of that really hurts. <laughs> yeah, if you're on the wrong side of, of Moore's Law, which basically just says that the number of transistors on a microchip doubles every two years. So basically, every two years, the processing speed of a microchip doubles. Yeah. Right? So you're essentially driving technological innovation of what you can do with a device and doubling the capability every two years. And I actually just saw an article a couple of days ago that now this what is Moore's Law could potentially be even blown out of the water even further. So scientists, researchers from George Washington University discovered how to use photons mm -hmm. instead of electrical processing. Mm -hmm. And so with photons, you can transfer information at the speed of light. So with this new photon 
processing technology, the core technology that they were testing is a hundred times faster than any electrical based microchip in existence. So the innovation is going to continue to exponentially increase. I mean, we'll see things like 5G and 6G, where data is transferred at the speed of light. Yeah, and thinking and knowing that, how on earth could they say that a touchscreen phone is a gimmick in a battery-hungry monster? <laughs> it is so naive. Right, because Moore's Law has been around for a long time. Oh, yeah, very long time. Like much earlier than when Nokia was going through this entire period of time. And the final thing I want to say about Moore's Law is that all phone manufacturers were on this track of Moore's law. It's not like one of them <laughs> yes. were and one of them weren't, you know? So, right. right. It's applicable to everyone. Yeah. They should have been able to look into the future. Yeah. So Eves Dawes, who is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Management for Inseed Business School, has a particularly savvy take on the Nokia story. He said, Nokia's mobile phone story exemplifies a common trait we see in mature, successful companies. Success breeds conservatism and hubris, which over time results in a decline of the strategy process, leading to poor strategic decisions, where once companies embraced new ideas and experimentation to spur growth, with success they become risk-averse and less innovative. Such considerations will be crucial for companies that want to grow and avoid one of the biggest disruptive threats to their future, their own success. And I think we've seen this at multiple points through our careers, points where things maybe are going pretty well and we want to protect against that. So we create a lot of, instead of continuing to focus on innovating on the core business, we create a lot of kind of hedging tactics or things that are intended to manage risk. Although the biggest risk of all is not innovating within your core business of what you're the best at and what you're the strongest at. So internally, Nokia had created this culture that made the kind of innovation they needed practically impossible. In numerous interviews with Nokia employees since 2012, the toxic culture at Nokia has been highlighted as a key factor in Nokia's demise. Writer Hai Hui wrote a piece in 2015 that stated, the lesson here is that if you create a company culture where people are berated if they tell you something you don't want to hear, you will never have the critical information you need at any given time. Without the core facts, warts and all, how can you make the necessary adjustments to stay ahead of the game? Yeah, and as we look at our own companies, it's important to constantly ask the question, is my success, which hopefully you know your business is achieving, robbing yourself of the trades that got you there? Mm. Or you can ask yourself, what am I doing to make sure that these trades that built my business remains true even as the business grows past their initial expression? Right. Or how do we make sure that the hard questions have a place to be asked? And then finally, I think a question that a lot of executives need to ask is, how do I as a leader stay open to hearing the things I don't want to hear? and cultivating an environment where that becomes a two-way stream, not just with the market, or not definitely just not with the shareholders, but also with your employees, trying to figure out where you're going and seeking out the hard things to hear. We all tend to grow more conservative as we get older, 
as I can definitely attest, I mean, I've traveled and moved a lot in my life. And now that I have got two little children, it's definitely getting harder, which is forcing me to become more conservative as a human being. And valuing comfort and stability over change and disruption. And I really think that companies are no different. And as a brand, to continually thrive and succeed influences counter to the impulse have to be built into its DNA itself. Yeah, yeah. It has to be something that you proactively build scaffolding around. It's very easy to say, oh, sure, as a leader, I'm open-minded and I'm going to listen, right? And I'm going to be willing to hear things that I don't want to hear, right? Anyone can kind of like give lip service to that. But actually creating the organizational structure, the pathways, the reputation and the consistency and the culture where that's okay to provide feedback like that right and that just doesn't happen by accident or by casual trying it right yeah it's a lot of work so let's finish today's episode with a few interesting facts about the company because they've been around for so long yeah so the well-known nokia tune which was the most commonly known identifying feature of the phone is actually said to be based on grand vols a 19th century guitar work of a Spanish musician. Interesting. Yeah, the musician's name was Francisco Terrega. And this work was actually well known as the Nokia tune since people found the original name hard to remember. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why. You said that really easy. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, wow, success. So around 1998, Nokia also renamed the tune as the Nokia tune in their phones. And according to a Fortune 2006 survey, Nokia was actually at the time the 20th most admirable company in the world. Wow. Yeah, and it's believed that a special tone available in Nokia's phones as an SMS tone is actually Morse code for SMS. Hmm. The ascending SMS tone is Morse code for connecting people, which is Nokia's tagline. The world's first satellite call was made in 1994 using a Nokia GSM handset. Wow. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. We will speak to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.